Hello and welcome to part four of this course called um, Experiment and Criticism that's taking a second look at uh, the work and world of C.S. Lewis or taking some elements of his work, some of his thoughts and taking them seriously. Uh, I've mentioned before but the, the idea for this course partly arose because uh, there is the superficial reading of Lewis, a very surface reading of Lewis that um, uh, people have often embraced sometime in their youth. And then there is a superficial kind of rejection, a surface rejection of C.S. Lewis. Uh, but what I want to do is return to his work uh, and go like, okay, once we get beneath the more shallow dimensions of it, uh, is there something really interesting going on? Uh, that was kind of the... Uh, the thesis or the, um, uh, the axiom that I wanted to test uh, and this was a couple of years ago now where I kind of went back and I read all of his work to try to see if there was um, something in it that was really interesting and challenging and destabilizing of my own position and um, uh, this course is partly a result of that that I think that there is a really interesting dimension to C.S. Lewis's work and it's always good whenever you're trying to express something or explore something is to find someone who you can engage critically with uh, someone who is someone you respect who's, who's intelligent who is honest um, and that can often clarify things so for me C.S. Lewis is a type of foil uh, I'm using in order to try to express some of the ideas within my own work uh, within parotheology and kind of also trying to use his work to explore some philosophical concepts that I'm interested in in the work of Hegel and Lacan in particular. And in fact, that's what we're going to do today. There's a, there's a, a concept in psychoanalysis called objet putia, or small object A. And I'm hoping that this uh, seminar this morning will kind of like bring to light what that concept means. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Also, I might release this as a one-off because I think this is a standalone session uh, that people can engage with without necessarily doing the other four parts of the course. So let's get started. Uh, the reading for this week was very short. It was a reflection that Lewis gave on the idea of hope. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline the argument in the piece uh, and then I'm going to kind of critically engage it and then we're going to come round to this idea of the uh, objet putia. So we start off then with uh, three terms that need to find, right? Very simply, uh, Lewis is talking about desire, happiness and hope, right? These are the three main concepts in this piece. Uh, and a way to define these is simply desire is the feeling we get from the lack of an object that we want, right? So desire is where we want an object that we do not have, that's desire. So very simple, very simple definition of desire, we want an object that we lack. Happiness is the experience we have when we get the object that we want, right? And hope is the, uh, what would you call it? the, uh, the uh, feeling that just perhaps all of our desires have an object that can be grasped. 
So desire is want for an object that we do not have. Happiness is the experience we get when we get the object that we desire. And then hope is the notion that perhaps all of our desires, all of our true deep desires, uh, not like our surface desires, like I want to eat ice cream for the rest of my life or something like that, but our true desires uh, at their most, at their widest, at their deepest, their most authentic, can all um, be satisfied. Uh, now already there's an interesting thing because but he comes comes to this because uh, there's a certain sense in which when you get the object of your desire sometimes you're profoundly unhappy right uh, whenever you get what you really want um, you realize it's not what you want but we'll come to that in a second so there's the three terms that he's using in this uh, piece and he's going to make three arguments uh, three axioms that he's that he's building his case of the first thing he says is that happiness cannot be directly attained, right? If you try to directly attain happiness, you will end up with something else. Uh, you will end up most likely unhappy, uh, unsatisfied. Uh, in fact, even uh, you'll end up uh, destroying your life and destroying the life of other people. Um, you know, potentially what happens when you start to pursue happiness as an end in itself, which is very common, always has been common I guess, but you see it in a very obvious way in contemporary society where um, happiness is uh, seen as an end in itself. Uh, what you end up with is potentially a type of superficial hedonism where you're continually moving from one thing to another to try to uh, attain this ever elusive happiness. So what, what Lewis says is happiness is not something you can directly aim at precisely because happiness is the epiphenomenon of the object that you want, right? Happiness is the sheen. Happiness is the byproduct of something else. So when you desire something, you desire an object. And when you get that object, you experience happiness as the result of that achievement. That's why it cannot be rendered into an object in itself without problems arising, without kind of entering into a type of performative contradiction. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, I suppose, lots of examples of this, and I'm trying to think of one. Um, well, yeah, here, here's an example. Uh, there's, a, there's a phenomenon um, that where people go shopping, right, go to Walmart, and they fill their baskets with products. And then before they go to the counter, they leave the trolley and leave, right? So what you see in some of these places like Walmart and Target are full trolleys that are just lying there. Um, you know, what, what's going on here? Well, at a, at a certain level, this is, this is people who are potentially poor. They've maybe had money, they've lost their jobs. And there's, they understand that actually one of the enjoyable parts of going to somewhere like target to buy stuff is the, is the purchasing is the pulling stuff off the 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 shelf looking at it going oh i'm gonna enjoy this when i get home right that it's not so much the buying of the product where the happiness is it's actually the kind of like the pursuit so what happens is you directly try to engage where the happiness is which is not in the object getting it at the end of the day it's in the kind of process uh, so it's in one way a very clever move, where it's like uh, there's uh, in Japan supposedly there are people who take flights places 
um, as if they're going somewhere, but then they just fly home because they you know, realize that actually when you're going on holiday, the, the most pleasurable bit of it is not necessarily getting the holiday, but the excitement of going on holiday, right? The, the waiting for it, the looking out for it. So these people are going, well, why don't we just directly embrace where the happiness is, which is in the process of going to the object and not the object itself. Um, but of course, the problem with this is that it doesn't lead to happiness. Um, it kind of leads to you know more depression and frustration because you've you've tried to directly grasp not the object, uh, but the happiness itself, and made that into an object, and then it enters into this kind of performative contradiction. So Lewis is making a point that that we should you know try to find fulfillment in. Uh, our jobs or our creative activities and in various things and as we get the objects of our desires happiness is this result that happens kind of behind our back without our noticing it um, it's almost like as soon as you look directly at it it dissipates it's always that a kind of like a second thought it's like oh my goodness yeah I suppose I am happy right and it's kind of like love again if you enter into a relationship uh, kind of like where you want to be loved and you want to experience love and, that, and love is the object then you're going to miss it it's going to slip between your fingers it's always going to seem like this fantasy you never quite get but rather when you forget about love and you meet someone who you just want to help who you just want to be with who you just want to kind of enrich their life that's the object and the kind of the epiphenomenon the sheen that comes out of that is love so that's the first part of C.S. Lewis's argument is that happiness is indirect. It is something that it is the achievement of the goal of desire. Uh, it, happiness is what results. Secondly, um, he makes starts to make a distinction. He doesn't make it explicitly, but it's an implicit distinction, uh, which we can call the difference between physical desire and metaphysical desire. So physical desire is the desires that can be met at the realm of being, right? The ontological, the, re the realm of stuff, psychological material things, right? So that's our everyday experience of desire. Um, that's, that's physical desire. But he says that even when we are satisfied and we get things that we want, we get the relationship we want, the job we want, the lifestyle we want, something remains, there's a remainder. There's another dimension, another type of desire that is interconnected, but, but, but not fulfilled by this physical desire. And he says that this is not something that you encounter because of the failure of physical desire. It's actually uh, probably even more obvious whenever you get the things that you want and whenever you are quite happy with the things that you want. Because if you're not happy, with the things, right? If you're not getting the object of your desires uh, in your everyday life, then you can, of course, easily maintain the fantasy that if only uh, you did get them, then everything would be great. But it's harder to maintain that fantasy whenever you actually get basically everything that you want. Because then you are confronted, not with the fantasy of, I mean, of course, what we can often do is then fantasize, oh, I need more. I need another house. I need more money. I need more this, that, or the other, right? But there's a certain point at which you begin to suspect that there is a metaphysical desire that cannot be fulfilled 
in the physical realm. And C.S. Lewis notes two types of responses to this, two common responses. The first is kind of the youthful response, which is, I kind of mentioned it already really, but it's the idea that, oh, there's something that will fulfill, right? So you move from one relationship to another, from one job to another, from one project to another, never hovering too long in anything because you're always looking for what it is that is going to bring the satisfaction, right? Always moving from one thing to another. Um, and you're unable to settle with anything. And that's a very common notion you see in obsessives, obsessive uh, neurotics who are always kind of wanting what they can't have and don't have and becoming very uninterested in what they do have, right? And then secondly, he says there are people, and this is the more kind of like, uh, he sees this as a more mature model, which is where you begin to acknowledge this, you resign yourself to it, and uh, you know, it's the, it's the guy who likes to sit and stare as long, right? He's kind of given up a little bit. He goes like, there's, no, there's nothing really exciting out there, really. I'll just look at my lawn, right? Um, and potentially is happy looking at the lawn, but, but there's a certain resignation so that nothing will satisfy this, that I am a creature that is born with an insatiable desire, a desire that does not have an object that can be grasped. So in the midst of all happiness, there is an unhappiness. And that's what I mentioned at the beginning, is that sometimes when you get the thing that you want, the physical desire, the object of the physical desire, there is a little bit of unhappiness mixed in because it doesn't satisfy this metaphysical desire or this transcendental desire. Oh, I'll mention a third one. He doesn't mention this, but I think it's actually an important one, is that you could say another very common response to this metaphysical desire is repression, right? So if, if the first response is the person who is trying to fulfill it with physical things, and the second response is someone who resigns themselves to saying that I am a creature that is born in tragedy. Uh, I, I am born with desires for objects that do not exist. So I am born to, uh, with the burden of unhappiness, right? Then the third response is repression, right? The third response would be individuals who repress the metaphysical desire, pretend it's not there, ignore it, just get on with everyday life. And that repression of the metaphysical desire then erupts in various destructive ways in their life bodily way. So it's not subjectively acknowledged, so it's objectively um, acknowledged. It's subjectively etched or noted in our bodies, in various illnesses, uh, in fatigue, in being feeling we are once allergic to modern life or whatever, which can be a real thing in some ways and can be also very deeply psychological. They're like, all illness is an interesting mix of, uh, you know, the mental and the physical, right? Um, uh, I mean, you can't say necessarily all illness, but you kind of, but, but in a sense, even very, very physical things like um, just you know, arteries that are blocked up can be partly a response to eating in an unhealthy way, which can be partly a psychological thing. So, right, there's a, there's a complex ecosystem between the psychological and the biological. Um, but then, the, yeah, the third then is the, say, the, the repression, just to, to ignore uh, this metaphysical desire, to try to avoid a confrontation with it. It's actually something, and I've mentioned Gabriel Marcel a few times in this course, and I, it's funny that he keeps coming up, but I think actually 
he is a good lens through which to understand C.S. Lewis. In some ways, Marcel being a first-rate uh, philosopher, existential philosopher, who plays with some similar themes. And he talks about uh, what he calls is the repression of ontological need. And that's pretty similar to what I'm talking about in terms of Lewis's metaphysical desire. Uh, Marcel thinks that most of us live with a repressed ontological need. Uh, we don't listen to that dimension of our lives that seems to be dissatisfied with, with the things that are in reality, that seems to attach to or desire something that is transcendental, i.e. beyond the realm of being. So that, that's the second part of his argument then is, uh, so the first is happiness is always indirect. If you try to directly achieve it, you end up with something else. Um, secondly, there are two types of desire. There's physical desire and there's metaphysical desire. And then the third part of his argument uh, is probably the most controversial and the one that you know, most people reject as kind of silly, uh, but I think it's very insightful, <laughs> is that he says Christianity is premised on the idea that there are no real desires that uh, are without an object, right? Now, he doesn't say that we always get the object of our desire. Elsewhere, he writes about how somebody could be starving on a boat and they starve to death. Their hunger is evidence that there is something called food, but it doesn't mean they're gonna get the food, but it just means that it is likely that food exists and uses that as a, as a kind of analogy for this. Um, so he says, Christianity says that all of our desires have an object that can be attained. And so what he's saying is that our metaphysical desire is evidence that there is an object that can fulfill that desire and bring lasting happiness. Okay, now of course on the superficial reading or the surface reading of this, this is an argument for a kind of a confessional conservative Christianity, right? Um, but to take, taking all that away, and what I've been trying to do in this course is show how when we're engaging with thinkers, it's less about what they're saying at the surface and more about the structure of their argument. That's the interesting bit, is to, to strip away what's called the imaginary, right? And to try to look at, at, at whether there's something really interesting in the, in the very st structure of the argument itself. And so C.S. Lewis has something interesting here. He says, all desires have an object. No desires without an object. Now, interestingly, that is a claim that is also made within psychoanalysis. Right? Psychoanalysis makes the claim that basically all desire has an object that can be gained. Now, psychoanalysis has a slightly different language to Lewis. Lewis is kind of coming in as a, as a uh, more popularist kind of thinker. Um, and in philosophy and in psychoanalysis, there are ways to parse out what Lewis is talking about. Uh, in psychoanalysis, it's, it's basically the difference between desire and drive. But I'm going to keep within C.S. Lewis's language here. Um, what basically psychoanalysis says is that the, our metaphysical desire does have an object that it aims towards. And that object is something, let's call it real. And they call it uh, object A, objet petit A, right? This is the type of object that um, I think Lewis is indirectly referring to, right? Now here's the thing about objet petit A. 
is it is a type of special object. In fact, it's an object that exists in its non-existence. Um, and okay, so here's a way of describing it. So uh, Slavio Žižek has a great example. He's used it in a few places, but in his most recent book, Sex and the Field Absolute, he returns to this. Uh, it's a really interesting story, but basically, one of Darwin's friends was uh, an evangelical or, or a fundamentalist Christian. And basically, whenever Darwin was talking to him about fossils, uh, and basically saying, well, what do you think about fossils? Because this guy believed that the earth was you know, under 6,000 years old, right? So when Darwin asked, well, what do you think about fossils? This guy said, well, God made the world to appear old, right? So just like someone who forges documents to make them look ancient, right? God created the world with the appearance of age. So when you discover a fossil where some animal is etched into stone, right, which would take you know, millions of years, God is able to create that. And God does this to test our faith, to see that will you continue to believe the, the revelation of God uh, whenever science and sci scientific uh, exploration seems to go against it. Now, it's not a very common argument. Uh, I have heard it a couple of times in fundamentalist circles, but um, usually I think in a, in a jokey way. But again, what, what she's like goes is he says, no, this is brilliant. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, right? There's, there is a, a, a logic and a truth to this argument that we need to unpick. And uh, basically he says that this is a very good way of understanding what object A is. Right? Object A is like, basically when we get objects that we think will satisfy us, they are the fossil that seems to point to something else. So in our daily lives, we get various things and those things point towards something that would be ultimately fulfilling, ultimately satisfying, that would bring lasting happiness, that would settle our desire. But that doesn't exist. It's a fossil that doesn't have an original. That's what object A is. It's in the, in the repetition of getting very concrete, everyday real things, we construct this fantasy object that will bring ultimate satisfaction. And in, in psychoanalysis, this object exists. It's, an, it's object A. It is, it is something, well, <laughs> Lacan said it this way, he said, well, he said, God has every uh, property, every perfection except one, existence. God has every perfection except one, existence. And what he's doing is he's playfully, um, he's referencing an old debate between Anselm, who says that God has every perfection, because the word God, basically whenever I use the word God, I mean a perfect being, right? So whether or not I believe in God, I am using the word God to define a perfect being. And so Anselm says, well, a perfect being has, has every perfection, right? So if I, I say God doesn't exist, I am saying a being who has every perfection doesn't exist. And then Anselm kind of cleverly says, well, one perfection is necessary existence, right? Necessary existence is a perfection. So what you're saying when you say God doesn't exist is you're saying God, which is a being that necessarily exists, doesn't exist. 
So you're in a contradiction, right? So Anselm uh, makes this argument. It's a really interesting argument. And then Immanuel Kant comes along and his response to it is that existence isn't a property, right? It's not something that a person has. People have properties and existence is what they hang off, right? They're the potato and Mr. Potato Head, right? You put the properties on it and the potato is what the properties hang off, right? So there's this interesting debate and then, you know, uh, Lacan plays with this and says, God, and by God he means object A, right? He's talking about object A. Object A has every perfection. In other words, when we think about that guy we want to be with or that girl we want to be with or that job or that money or whatever it is, right? When we think of that, um, it has every perfection. It seems like it's going to satisfy our metaphysical desire, right? It seems like it's going to it's going to can make everything okay, and it has every perfection except one. It doesn't exist, and that's object A. It's the fossil that points. Well, it's not the fossil. It's what the fossil points to. It, the fossil actually is a copy of something that never existed, or it is the uh, echo of something that never was. Now, without getting too deep into the weeds of object A, um, I just wanted to give you a kind of basic definition of it. Um, and then work on that to say this, to say that within psychoanalysis, the object of Lewis's metaphysical desire is not to grasp something, it's to revolve around it. It's to orbit object A. So metaphysical desire is satisfied by not being satisfied. It, because the, the role of that type of desire is not to end by getting something, but to maintain itself. To, so the, the, the aim of this type of desire is to continue to keep desire going. And you can see why that's positive when you look at depression, because depression can be described as the failure of desire, right? When you're properly depressed, it's not that you, um, you know, aren't getting what you desire, it's you've lost the very ability to desire, right? You don't want to get out of bed, nothing means anything, everything is grey. There is like a sense of which desire has almost completely shut down. And part of working with someone who's depressed is to try to get their desire working again, right? To try to get it revolving around something, not too far away and not too close. Because um, if you get too close to object A, it becomes an incestuous object that stops being object A. And too far away from it uh, creates this kind of sense of utter defeat, right? So how do you revolve around this? And so the critique here of C.S. Lewis is just that, yeah, the good news of Christianity, of pyrotheology, is similar to the good news of Christianity that C.S. Lewis is talking about, which is that desire, that metaphysical desire that you feel, that, 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 that is either repressed in you or that you try to avoid or whatever, right? Or you've reconciled yourself to never, be, have, never being able to satisfy it. Actually, the good news is you can. You, it has an object that you can attain. And it's even better news than C.S. Lewis because in C.S. Lewis, you have to wait till you get to heaven. Whereas here, it's like, no, salvation begins today, right? There is a way of being in which this metaphysical desire gets its object. It gets its object by revolving around object A, because that's what it wants. It wants to continually feel, 
to get what it wants. Now there's a negative side to this, which we all see, which is where we keep our desire going by sabotaging ourselves, by throwing ourselves under the bus. Uh, by every time we're about to, it looks like our life's going to get better, we do something that seems to destroy that, right, or damage it or destabilize it. And that's a negative way in which this, uh, our drive or our metaphysical desire is trying to keep itself going, right? It doesn't want to stop. It wants to keep going, right? But there's a positive way, and this is the good news, right, is that you can have something that you really desire, that really animates your life, that you hope for. But it's in the constant failure to get it that gives you satisfaction. And I'll give you one example from my own life. And it's in my own work, it's my work paratheology, right? I have a vocation, right? I'm trying to develop and explore uh, 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 well, basically, I mean, I'm a philosopher and I enjoy philosophy, but I have a project where I see a form of Christianity and a form of theological practice that can be helpful, that can, at a personal and a political level, um, that can give us insight into ourselves and into our world, right? And I never get it. Every seminar I give about it, every course I do on it, every book I write on it, what I'm left with is a fossil. And the fossil isn't the thing, so I always feel like I haven't quite nailed it. And I genuinely feel like that. I give a course and I think, right, this is the course where I'm really gonna nail down what this is. And at the end of the course, I feel like all I've got in my hands is a fossil, not the real thing. But that is what animates me to then do another course, to write another book, to go deeper, to think more, to engage more with other people. It's not something that's dissatisfying to me. It's actually what animates my life and in the midst of any other difficulties, because life is full of difficulties. I mean, at the moment, I, uh, I'm in good health. Right? I haven't suffered any health issues really in my whole life, I'm very lucky. But of course I will, you know? Um, so I am 46 now, maybe, maybe I have a heart attack in the next few years. I don't know, hopefully not, but um, uh, things go wrong in life, right? Or break up, or uh, you lose all your money, or lots of things happen that are largely out of your control. But in the midst of all of that normal stuff, what keeps me going is that I want to nail down what paratheology is. I want to help the community arise that really explores this in a healthy way, right? And I never get there. And that is not the failure of my metaphysical desire. That is the success. That is it working well. And that's what animates me. So this brings me to hope, right? In contrast to C.S. Lewis's hope, this could be called uh, what John Caputo talks about, hoping against hope or hope without hope. It is a type of hope that doesn't have a sacred object or a lost object that animates it. It's a hope that knows that the truth is not in getting the definition of paratheology. The truth is in the, the ongoing failure to get there that helps me create a richer, more interesting, and hopefully more complex um, system that might, might be, that, might, that might have benefit, right? That, I think, is, 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 is the satisfaction of this metaphysical desire. 
So in a way, I am arguing that C.S. Lewis gets something right, uh, and that actually there is a way of thinking about this in a radical uh, context using Lacan and Lacan's notion of object A to say that perhaps uh, a radical Christianity or paratheology is saying that yes, you have natural desires, right? And you have transcendental desires or drive. You have, you have these desires that are not swallowed up in everyday life, um, but that they, they do have a way of being satisfied and they are satisfied precisely in not being satisfied. Their object is an impossible object that is in the world but not of it. An object that is, you can call it sublime after Kant, or transcendental. I, it's not an object in the world. Object A isn't in the world. It is what orients your world. And as you orient yourself around object A, you find yourself satisfied in your dissatisfaction. And that is good news. Okay, uh, I think I, I uh, gave a, a broad overview of, of what, what was happening in Lewis's article and kind of my response to it. So basically, Lewis has the definition of desire, which is want of an object you don't have. Happiness is when you get that object. And hope is that all of our desires have an object that can be received. And my argument is that, yes, when he makes a distinction between physical desire and metaphysical desire, uh, metaphysical desire is different because it doesn't desire regular objects. It actually desires object A. It desires a type of virtual object. Like whenever you're playing a virtual reality game and they're or augmented reality and they're objects in the world, they're not really there, but you look through the screen of your phone and you see Pokemon or whatever it is, right? It's a virtual entity that doesn't exist in the world, but that enriches and orients our world. And that metaphysical desire is precisely satisfied in revolving around that object, uh, which is always there within us. And that's the good news, that you can be satisfied in your dissatisfaction. Um, so there, there you go.